Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Another show that is coming up soon and will be on down at Geelong Art Centre uh, is Black Cockatoo, which is fascinating to me on a number of levels, not least because it's a story on one level about sport and about cricket, and I'm not much of a fan of cricket, but I was fascinated to learn several years ago that the first Australian cricket team to tour the UK went across in 1868 and it was an all-Aboriginal team and Black Cockatoo tells that story. It's directed by Wesley Enoch, who joins me on the line now. Wesley, good morning. Good morning, Richard. When did you first learn about this story? Well, it's been a story that's been floating around for a while, actually. I mean, I remember back in 88, I think it was, there was talk about it, and there's a sense of... Uh, I know, a pride, I think, that that Aboriginal cricketers were the people who were going over and representing our country back in 1868. And, and, and a sense, too, of the narrative that we often forget about Australia is our Aboriginal narratives. You know, I've been doing shows about Aboriginal soldiers going to World War One. I, I, I love telling the story, putting onto the public record a story that has often been suppressed. And and we often have this uh, deficit narrative, this sense that um, Aboriginal Australia has nothing to offer, you know, that terrible thing. And this is a story of saying actually pride and power along the way as well. Now, you directed this production while you were also still the director of Sydney Festival. <laughs> yes. uh, is it nice now to be able to revisit the work and to give it your undivided attention, as it were? <laughs> If only my life was undivided. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, um, yes, yes, it is good. I think it's also wonderful to return to a work um, and and have a chance to revisit it with new cast in this case as well. I mean, this story of Indigenous cricket, it, it's interesting that, you know, we've got fantastic tennis players. Um, uh, the, the Johnny Muller medal, uh, which has just been named and, and allocated to an Indigenous player from from the peninsula, actually down towards Frankston recently. This Scott Boland, this whole idea of Indigenous cricket now is coming up to the fore. And I, I love, too, that these great big stories that we like to tell about our nation actually has an Aboriginal presence uh, along the way. I mean, who isn't proud of Ash Barty? Who isn't proud of Ash Barty as an amazing athlete? you know, winning the Australian Open and being number one tennis star. At the same time, uh, there's a, a wonderful anniversary of Yvonne Goolagong. And th there's another sports show for you, Sunshine Supergirl, which was uh, at the Sydney Festival as well when I was there. But this, this notion of sport and art always coming together to help tell our stories. So for me to, to give a focus now, just as a director, not just as a programmer, is... Um, I don't know. I think it's a luxury I can uh, I can get used to. <laughs> <laughs> now, the fact that the the story is for some people, uh, particularly kind of white Australians, they may not have heard the story before. Uh, how does the playwright uh, Jeffrey Atherton 
kind of give an entry point to uh, this story from the past from a contemporary perspective? Yeah, so Geoffrey Atherton, people will know, he wrote uh, Mother and Son, Grassroots, he's done a lot of television writing as well as some playwriting. And he came to me originally with this play, which was about, you know, Johnny Muller, this Indigenous player, Jadavajali man from uh, around Harrow area um, in regional Victoria. And it was pretty much a white story about this black man in a white world as he's touring through England. And we're going, oh, Geoffrey... I'm just not interested in that, you know, that's not something I'm interested in. And I said, I, if I was to do this show, I'd do an all-Indigenous cast. And he went, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Of course, not. you know, that's not his job necessarily. And I kind of went through this process with him and he did this great work with Isaac Drandich, uh, who, who, who was going to be the director of it until he moved to Queensland. And they did this thing where they said, actually, where's the contemporary story? It can't just be historical. We have to see that there's a connection to where we are today. And they created this world where a group of um, Indigenous students break into a fictional museum uh, about Johnny Muller and the cricket team and start to talk about artefacts, start to talk about, you know, collecting agencies and museums and the, the... museum view of history, if you like, that kind of sanitises it, puts it in box and leaves it to the side. And so that we, we jump back and forward from 1968 oh, and, the, and surrounding years and also this present-day story of these young, let's call them activists, who want to make sure that they shine a light on the story of Johnny Muller. And, and just to give some background, you know, that Indigenous um, cricketers uh, were... This team, when they went to England in 1968, 1868, sorry, they they did cricket, but they also did what they called games days, where they did spear throwing and boomerang throwing, and it was part of this kind of anthropological circus uh, um, activity that was a lot in the 1800s and 19th century, about where you know there would be anthropological human zoos where. Maoris or, or, or Native Americans or the people from Africa would be brought together to perform their cultural tricks, if you like. And that this was one of the first times it was also a skill-based thing where they would play local cricket teams and they won 14 games, lost 14 games and drew the rest. And they really shone a light too on the racial uh, complications of empire at the time. And uh, it, it was one of those really wonderful things. Though what happens is they come back to Australia and, well, as we know, you know, people have been moved on to missions and, and different reserves and communities uh, that were taken off their land. And these cricketers, though they returned with a sense of status, they never really got to enjoy the fruits of their um, victory. And so now, in the present day, we can actually celebrate them and say, look at what this great achievement was. And, and the play is a great celebration of Johnny Muller and the team that went. And there's a connection there, clearly, between uh, the, the story uh, being told in Black Cockatoo and also the story of Black Diggers, which you referenced earlier, uh, the play which yeah. you also directed. Again, uh, people going off... Uh, in the name of Australia, and then coming back and being refused service, not being recognised, not being celebrated. There is kind of this shameful thread running through Australian history, which plays like this uh, are shining a light on and reminding us of. 
Well, this country, I think, is addicted to forgetfulness in some ways. We're also, we, we love the idea of being young and lucky in this country. And that means that we have to divorce ourselves from our very long connection to this continent as human beings and the cultural connection First Nations Australians have. And, you know, these little moments of, you know, like the cricket team going in 1868, uh, Black Hawk 2 is just a lovely little reminder too of actually think about the history you may have learnt at school or the narratives you might still prescribe to now may not actually be the full story. And as I look forward into, especially in Victoria, where we're talking a lot about treaty, we're talking about the idea of what notions of sovereignty look like, that truth-telling will be very, very important and that people will feel confronted by hearing stories that have been, I don't know, uh, they, they didn't have access to, that they've been denied, that they've suppressed, and that there will be an anger, not just from Aboriginal Australians, but also from non-Aboriginal Australians, that this history has not had, they haven't had, had access to it. And this play is just a very small part of a bigger conversation about truth-telling, that the more we understand our expansive truth, not just the, the narratives that have come through from our education system or, or government or, or, or media, it's the more we in, embrace this broader understanding of our history, the better we will be as a country, the stronger we will be as a country. Wesley, so often in Australia, it's the, the, the culture of forgetting you've just described often extends to the theatre as well. Uh, works are, see, uh, are staged once, for example, and then often almost forgotten. So to have the opportunity to revisit this work as a director, what kind of conversations are you having with uh, Geoffrey, the playwright, uh, about kind of tinkering, reworking, kind of making it evolve? And are you having similar conversations with the cast? Because I'd imagine there'd be some considerable cast changes given the uh, availability and, and demand upon actors. <laughs> Well, and can I say this is a, a, a good news story when so many Indigenous actors are, are in work across the country. And, you know, touch wood that COVID doesn't um, stymie that in the next 12 months. But there's so many Indigenous performers who are out there doing their work and it's amazing. And so, yes, we've only got about, out of a cast of six, only two did the original production. This was a show that was meant to be touring last year, but, you know, obviously COVID has mucked everything up, as we all know. So, so yes, we are going in, and different cast members bring different things. They bring different perspectives, and they see the script in a different way. And actually freed up from the pressure of just putting on the show, you know, for the first time, you get that chance to just reflect and kind of understand things differently. So amazing cast members who are bringing new perspectives to the, to the piece. Um, I should say, too, that the... At the time when we did it originally, you know, Cricket Australia was always supportive. They were great. But actually, this play has added to the momentum. So the Johnny Muller medal, which is now the, the um, uh, Boxing Day test, the best player is given the Johnny Muller medal. And Johnny Muller being the, the key, I don't know, standout cricketer from the Aboriginal team in 1868. So, and that was given to Scott Boland. This, uh, Scott, um, oh, Scott Boland? Oh, good. Isn't that terrible? I think it's Scott Boland, who's the, the Aboriginal cricketer. Um, I just remembered I've gone, oh, I, I know someone else is called Scott Boland, and I'm now getting confused in my head. But that, you know, that Cricket Australia is using 
the the memory, the the narrative of these these, these cricketers, and really um, celebrating it in a way that may not have been celebrated for the last 150 years. So you know, I think the play has added to the the pressure, if you like, on Cricket Australia to to really wrap this up and really support the storytelling of of um, Indigenous Australians in cricket. I'm really looking forward to heading down to Geelong next month to see Black Cockatoo uh, at Geelong Art Centre from the 22nd until the 26th of March. You can book by jumping online, geelongartcentre.org.au. It's an ensemble theatre production uh, and is directed by Wesley Enoch. Wesley, it's been a pleasure chatting. It is always a pleasure chatting. And uh, <laughs> maybe I'll see you in Geelong. See you in Geelong. Well, and it's, if Frankston is closer to you, it's also going to Frankston. So if you're on the other side of, uh, of the bay, you can get to that side. Uh, many opportunities then to see Black Cockatoo, which sounds like a, it really sounds like a fascinating play. Uh, and I hope it gets a, a really warm response from crowds in Frankston and indeed Geelong. Wesley, thanks so much. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Melbourne Fringe Festival last year, as you may recall, announced a program, then had to essentially tell all the independent artists that they advi- well, advise all the independent artists not to do live shows and then quickly restructured the festival and did a digital festival again. And some of the artists involved in Melbourne Fringe last year very, very quickly rethought their shows from a live experience and turned it into a digital one. One of those shows was Telia Neville's Little Monster, and what Telia has now done is reimagined the show yet again back into a live experience and it's showing as part of the Fringe Rebound program running from the 22nd of Feb to the 23rd of March at Fringe Common Rooms at Trades Hall. Telia, are you exhausted with all of this? Oh, it's this format. No, it's this format. Now it's back to the other one again. I'm kind of enjoying it. It's like um, you write one show and then it has lots of different faces and different lives. So it was hugely stressful, but it's actually really exciting. Well, I'm really excited to see it live because I watched the streamed version for Fringe last year, which, we should say, went on to win Best Work in the Festival. Congratulations. Uh, And I really enjoyed the show, and which didn't surprise me on one level because I'm, I'm familiar with your body of work and I really enjoy seeing your mix of poetry and spoken word and, and theatre and performance kind of all mixed up together. But it, what did surprise me was how it worked so well as an online piece, given that you'd only had a couple of weeks to reimagine it. And it also surprised me how much I enjoyed the online experience because the thing that I struggled with throughout lockdown was missing the liveness of live performance and finding yeah. the stream a, a, a bit of a poor cousin. So I was impressed with your show on a number of levels. But all that aside, let's talk about the show itself. How, what's your elevator pitch for Little Monster? How do you describe it to people? Um, 
It's about uh, inner demons, so uh, fear and anxiety and imposter syndrome, and it reimagines them as increasingly horrific housemates in the share house of your mind, and they kind of move in one by one and then just start to wreak a little havoc. And it's all written in the style of Dr. Zeus, so it's a little bit like the cat in the hat meets a BuzzFeed listicle about, like, the Internet's top 40 worst housemate stories ever. Which anybody who has ever lived in a share household will relate to. And anybody who's ever struggled with anxiety or depression will also relate to as well. What uh, I... What delighted me about this production was the way that... Well, lots of things delighted me, but the way you embody those kind of moods and and disorders and make them into identifiable types that people may well have lived with in their lives, that fascinated me. Oh, thank you. It drew on uh, a fair bit of my own personal experience uh, from several decades' worth of share housing. Um, but it really, they really do feel like housemates that you think are okay when they move in and then gradually you just start to think, something is not right. Uh, this is starting to impinge on my ability to live my life or my ability to enjoy coming home or sometimes my ability to feel safe. And then you just feel a little bit trapped because they're where you live and, you know, you have to go home every night and be there. So it... It felt like a like a good fit, and it let me sort of expel some of my housemate horror stories. <laughs> Watching the live stream, for example, one of the there was a point, uh, maybe about halfway through the piece, I'd actually almost forgotten that we were talking about anxiety, talking about depression, talking <laughs> about those kind of issues, and it became a housemate story, which to me is a sign of how successful the work is, that it never feels like a, a didactic, here's what it's like to live with an anxiety disorder, for example. It's here's what it's like to live with this particular kind of housemate. You gave them distinct personalities. Talk to us about the the, the creative process and the writing process to, to make them feel like people rather than feel like voices in your head? Well, I think the, the structure really helped because I kind of... The first thing about the show that came to me was I want it to be written in the style of Dr. Zeus and I want it to be about inner demons. And so I started sort of rereading Dr. Zeus and talking to people about how they were feeling because this was, you know, the second year of lockdowns everybody was deep in it and I think a lot of us are still sort of phasing in and out of it or still stuck in the middle of it right now and I was talking to a friend about some of their anxieties and they talked about how they were kind of unwelcome guests in his mind and then something just sort of clicked and writing it was just a joy I think it was what helped me get through that period uh, and and feel okay at that time because it was just, it was so much fun. And the more I kind of shared the funny stories that I usually pull out when somebody talks about hunting for a house and and some of the stories that I've heard from other people, it just kind of, it flowed out and they kind of appeared in front of me um, in that way that is the singular joy of writing when something just sort of reveals itself in front of you and you think, oh, there you are. 
Were you ever concerned or worried at any stage that by presenting this story uh, in a, a, a manner of rhyme and rhythm akin to Dr Seuss that you might accidentally end up trivialising some of these stories? I was a little worried about um, sort of waiting too far in uh, and triggering someone or uh, just making somebody uncomfortable. So I sort of made a conscious choice to keep it all happy and light while talking about some real things. So it kind of... It talks about the level of inner demon where you are starting to definitely feel it, but it hasn't pulled you under yet. Because um, they are very sensitive subjects and they are very real concerns. And I do have depression and I do have anxiety. Um, so it is, yeah, you don't want to trivialise it. You don't want to dictate to somebody how they should feel about something. You don't want to pin it down. You want to give people enough space to find what they can in it and find what they want to find in it and and take something that is going to comfort them and, and remind them that they are absolutely not the only one feeling like this. It's just a lot of us... Um, like, society doesn't like talking about it very much, so I tried to create a space where we could talk about it and share in a sort of a, a, a fun and welcoming way. Was there ever a point when you felt that you would never get to perform this live, that having filmed it and released it online for Digital Fringe last year, that that was it, that its life was over? Or did you always expect that you'd have the opportunity at some stage, pandemic conditions willing, to bring it live to the stage in the manner that it was always intended to be? I always desperately wanted it. Um, I haven't sort of locked down any dreams in my mind about things like that because, you know, obviously the situation changes almost hourly. Um, but it, it was always something that I really, really wanted to do. And my drama Turk lives in Wellington and we've been talking on and off about touring around New Zealand and sort of watching the border announcements uh, very closely. But it was always destined to go back on stage because uh, that's kind of what it was written for, really. It's about sharing, and, and sharing is so beautiful when you're in the same room together. It's something that I've enjoyed enormously over the last few weeks of going back out to see live performance. Anne-Marie Peard and I were talking about it earlier in the program, that the, the kind of communal experience, which is seeing a live yeah. show. Even if you're sitting in a room full of strangers, you're still sharing something with them. You're watching that experience together. And then there's the opportunity to sit and talk about it afterwards with a, with a stranger, with a friend, or perhaps even with the artist themselves over uh, a drink or a soft drink after the show. Yeah, it's incredible. You can feel other people reacting and, and it sort of frees you up to react as well in whatever way you choose and it's it's kind of it's secular communion you come together and you share and feel and the proximity is just irreplaceable i loved doing it digitally it was 
not at all what I expected, um, but the proximity is what I kind of ache for. Telia Neville's Little Monster, described as a wild tale about housemates, hobnobs and the inner demons <laughs> we all try to hide but can't ignore, has... A short season as part of Fringe Rebound. You can catch it on Wednesday the 23rd, Friday the 25th and Sunday the 27th of February at 7pm at Fringe Common Rooms at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street in Carlton. And you can book by going to melbournefringe.com.au or by picking up the phone right now and punching in the numbers 9660 Triple six. That's nine double six oh nine triple six or melbournefringe.com.au to see Telia Neville's award winning I bloody loved it little monster at Trades Hall in the Fringe Common Rooms. Telia, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you for creating Little Monster and I'm so glad that you have the chance to stage it live and I get to see it live. So thank you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to have you there. We've talked about a range of art forms on the show so far. We've had contemporary dance, we've had some theatre, we've had some uh, kind of solo performance work. It's time for us to talk about visual art now. There's a new exhibition showing at the Shrine of Remembrance called Lust, Love, Loss and exploring Australian stories of relationships in wartime. Joining me on the line to tell us a little bit more about the exhibition is its curator, Neil Sharkey. Neil, good morning. Good morning, Richard. As soon as I heard about this exhibition, I was instantly fascinated, partially because there's such a a rich history of work exploring uh, romance and sexuality in war, specifically in the visual arts, for example. So here in Melbourne, if you if I think about visual art depicting wartime sexuality, I immediately think of somebody like Albert Tucker uh, and his Visions of Modern Evil series in which we see, I guess, contemporary fears around unfettered female sexuality and marauding American soldiers kind of in St Kilda playing out vividly on the canvas. But I imagine that might be a starting point for some people, but what was your starting point in wanting to put lust, love, loss together? Yeah, well, look, uh, I mean, the, the Tucker series is, is, is fantastic. We do have a, a representative of it in the exhibition. Um, but, look, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating topic that uh, has fascinated people for a very long time. I mean, Homer... Uh, in the Iliad, um, talks about um, the, the the love affair between Ares, the god of war, and of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and um, uh, you know they're captured uh, in a trap, in a tryst, um, uh, while they're you know in, you know inside in, in and 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 so the Greeks certainly had a, a concept that the that love and war were you know. A, you know, two sides of a coin. You know that these very powerful emotions of of violence and hatred, you know, were like polar opposites, I guess, and linked to, um, you know, other other great passions. You know, uh, sexual attraction and attachment, and and uh, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So when the time came to 
um, that the, the Shrine thought we'd do this exhibition, I was very much thinking along those terms and trying to distill down all the ways in which um, sex and love uh, interplay with uh, with warfare and uh, and the influence that both forces have had on Australians during times of war. In terms of ordinary everyday stories one of the things that fascinates me again about this area is and I've seen it playing out in conversations and and people's Facebook posts and so forth uh, people discovering love letters that their parents or grandparents may have written during wartime and being perhaps a little shocked and startled by how frank their uh, and and how lustful their apparently demure grandmother or uh, or conservative grandfather had been when they were younger. In terms of incorporating those kinds of, of personal stories into the exhibition, what kind of objects have you included alongside some of the, the, the artworks that uh, we've already touched upon? Yeah, well, look, I think a great example of what you're um, t- talking about there is um, we've got a story of a couple, uh, Merle and Bob James. Um, so Merle was a uh, a WAF, so she was a, a member of the Women's Auxil- Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force, and her husband was Bob James, and he was a, a private in the 9th Division in the AIF. And so the exhibition features a, a display of various uh, love tokens and photographs and so forth that, was, that were exchanged between those two during the war. Um, and one of the really interesting um, items is a stack of letters um, that that Mel um, had, and they're all letters from other boyfriends that she had during the war, um, and uh, some of it, some of which she'd actually been engaged to. Um, and, uh, and it's just fascinating in the way that war, because it you know it separates people, you know, across time and space, um, that. You know these 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 relationships um, can 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 wax and wane, uh, and also I mean a lot of the young men in that stack of letters were were actually killed. Um, most of them, in fact, were killed during the, the course of the war. So it, it also shows the that um, the Bob and Mel's relationship could have just as easily, um, you know, not happened. Um, so yeah, I mean it. it when you're dealing with those um, sorts of stories, you've got to deal with a lot of sensitivity and so forth. So, uh, and and, um, and uh, certainly, you want, certainly you want to tell those really interesting stories about um, you know young people in love, but you know just uh, while also keeping you know being respectful of you know some of the private details of them, I guess. Yeah. So that uh, one of the things you've touched on there is again reflected in the title of the exhibition Lust, Love, Loss the fact that some people who were writing these letters never came home as you said, love and the passion that people have and lust as well, just the the, the power of sexual attraction uh, and one of the things that uh, is touched on and the, the way the exhibition is presented uh, if people want to uh, jump online shrine.org.au you can get a sense of how the, the different themes are kind of 
played out in the exhibition. Uh, and Lust, for example, acknowledged in a section called Body Beautiful, in which the, the bodies of soldiers become in and of themselves objects of, of lust and desire. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, um, for, for a very long time, Warriors have sort of been celebrated by their societies um, well, since Homer's time, and um, powerful associations have been drawn between, uh, you know, their their skill and bravery on the battlefield and, and sexual potency, I guess. Uh, and, and, and soldiers and, and sailors and airmen are sort of in, encouraged to glorify... And, and their women, too, uh, uh, encouraged to glorify... Um, you know, to glorify the bodies and physical fitness, and you know what they're they're capable of. So, yeah, we've got a we've got a beautiful painting, uh, actually showing um, called the Gunner, uh, which you know from the during the time of the First World War, and it depicts you know this this bronze uh, bronze uh, Anzac God, I suppose, uh, and he's a gun behind him in the in the in the you know this. There's a there's a cannon that's sort of rising from the mist, <laughs> sort of rising from his rising from his his um, his loins, you know. So it's, it's quite uh, uh, you know. <laughs> it's not a subtle work, shall we say? But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a subtle work. I guess it was made around the time when you know fraud series were first gaining currency and so forth. So yeah, yeah. it's quite funny to bump, I guess, but. And it's, um, it's an interesting painting to look at because by contemporary standards, it, it's, it is, uh, it's not especially frank. But if we look at it from uh, of the period it was created, yes, the, the, um, it, was, it could almost have been considered risque. And if we talk about kind of risque yeah. attitudes towards sex and desire and, and indeed sexual identity, that's played out in the exhibition as well. Uh, the, the work Female Impersonator, uh, Private Victor Fox, 1945, acknowledging the history of drag acts in entertainment during the war. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it was a very popular... Um Popular entertainment, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, if um, and they were guys in those in those days on the front lines. Um, you know, they were separated from female company. If there were some, and if they were, if they were somewhere like the New the jungles of New Guinea or a prisoner of war camp on the Thai Burma Railway or in Changi, um, then yeah, um, you know, the, the opportunities to, to to meet with uh, women were pretty uh, few and far between. So that um, you know, the, I guess the men were able to, um, you know, they could they could actually get really carried away in these shows and and, and forget that the person they were looking at um, was a man in a dress. You know, it was uh, um, it's it's quite um, um, yeah, and I, and I guess also for the men who were performing to be able to explore that that part of themselves and to enjoy, um, you know, uh, yeah, expressing that part of themselves, yeah. The exhibition Lust, Love, Loss is now showing until the 1st of November at the Shrine of Remembrance, located in Birdwood Avenue, Melbourne. If you're a Melbourneian, you don't really need me to tell you where the shrine is. It's kind of iconic and unforgettable and everybody kind of uh, has seen it at some stage and knows how to get there. But the website, www.shrine.org.au for more details. And Neil, just before I let you go, as well as the exhibition itself, I understand there's an accompanying three-part podcast 
Lust series, that he's also exploring these themes of lust, love and loss and relationships during wartime. Yeah, absolutely. So Megan Spencer, um, who Triple R um, listeners may know, I, I believe she used to be a presenter on Triple R um, years ago. Uh, yeah, she's created a, a wonderful series of podcasts um, that uh, feature the stories of um, uh, um, service people and their partners, and uh, and just where they where they're able to talk about you know the, the, the various challenges. Um, that they face, um, uh, you know, when they're, they're separated um, due to service or when uh, one of the partners is deployed overseas in a combat zone and, and you know, looks at loneliness and their separation. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think they're, they're, really, they're really thoughtful um, pieces and um, Megan's done a great job. And, uh, yeah, I, I encourage people to... To have a listen and um, just to, to get a better understanding of some of the challenges that um, people face. Um. Again, that podcast series available by going to www.shrine.org.au and the exhibition we're discussing, Lust, Love, Loss, Australian Stories of Wartime Relationships, on now at the Shrine of Remembrance until the 1st of November. I've been chatting with the exhibition curator, Neil Sharkey. Neil, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.